Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello once again, my friend, and welcome to the Stream Police Podcast, the show that is brought to you by, well, two nerds, really, who uh, sit, one in their closet and one in their basement, and bring you their monologued thoughts on television, movies, music, and everything else that's out there streaming in our world right now. Everything that has made it worthless for Andy and I, my co-host Andy Sedlak, our music editor who we'll be hearing from in just a little bit, that has made it worthless for us to own all the vinyl and fucking CDs and all the... I've got... I own more than 2,000 DVDs that I've bought over the years and Blu-rays. And I always collected them, but who knew that they were going to be completely pointless to own because every movie was just going to be in something called the cloud. But you know what? We're holding fast to our old technology, and we're still bringing you uh, this show live from our closet and our basement. Uh, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Clint Davis, the movies and TV editor at OverdueReview.com, which, well, no longer exists as of uh, right now as I'm talking to you. Still working on trying to uh, get it all cleaned up from the hackers that took over. But, you know, you can hear my full thoughts on that last uh, in last month's episode. But this monthly odyssey into everything that's out there streaming for you right now, everything that's on TV, uh, everything that's on Spotify, whatever it is, we love bringing you this show. We do it for fun. We do it from the bottom of our hearts because, you know, we don't make a dime off this show. So hopefully you enjoy it. Hopefully you spread the word. You pass it along to your friends. We've been doing it for a couple of years now. And uh, I know I don't want to. I don't want to speak for my my boy, but I'm still really enjoying it. I like coming in here into my closet and and talking to you. Uh, by the way, like I said, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. We'll be sending it over to Andy, who's in Dayton, um, in his basement with his gin and tonic. We'll hear from him in just a little bit. But I got a lot to talk about today. Coming up uh, later on in the show. So after we go to Andy, coming up in the second half of the show, I'm going to tell you my full thoughts on the Avengers: Infinity War. Um, which is the fastest movie ever to make a billion dollars, 11 days, made a billion dollars, insane. Um, I'm going to give you my full thoughts with spoilers, so I'll, I'll give you plenty of warning before that, so if you haven't seen the movie and you want to you know, not listen to that part, I'm going to give you plenty of warning, but that's coming up way later in the show. So first, let's do what we always do, which is uh, I'm going to kick back here, I'm going to light my stogie, I'm sitting in my closet smoking a stogie, talking to you. And uh, let, me, let me get that going because i got to get the ambience uh, uh, happening in here first. Mm. 
Like I said, a lot to talk about today, some controversial stuff to talk about uh, here in just a few moments. But first off, I want to start with a segment that is not going to bring any controversy because I trust all of you out there, all of the deputized stream police officers that we've got all across this great world of ours. Every one of you is going to agree with what I'm about to say. And, you know, I like to start the show always by talking about a great TV show theme song from the history of television. It's a little segment I call the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And this week, for the 28th installment into our our canon of the greatest TV show theme songs, I'm going to go with a song that is so beloved that I guarantee you no one is going to disagree with my pick here. It's not going to be controversial at all. So in the past on this segment, I've tackled some childhood favorite, you know, TV theme songs. We've had we've done the Pokemon theme, we've done Sesame Street theme, we've done the Ren and Stimpy show theme, uh, the Adventures of Pete and Pete. That theme song got in here before. But, you know, I've got a special place in my heart for this week's greatest TV show theme song of all time. Because it's got one of the most original and instantly identifiable pieces of intro music that I honestly can ever remember hearing on television. I know I say that a lot about these greatest songs because I think that's something you have to have. You have to have an intro like uh, uh, it's like in wrestling. You know, a wrestler has a great intro, you know, a great entrance song. As soon as you hear the first couple of notes, you know, as soon as you heard the glass break and you knew it was time for Stone Cold to come out. So as soon as you hear the first two notes of a, a TV theme song, you know what the show is and you're instantly kind of hooked into the thing. It's 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 comforting and it's, uh, you know, something that you just it's it's like a nice warm hug. Right. So this show has one of the most original, instantly identifiable pieces of intro music that I ever remember hearing. And let's see if I'm correct and if you know this right away. So some of you, I know, are pumped after hearing those weird little notes, and the others are wondering what the hell is going on. But for 23 years, from 1983 to 2006, those synth notes introduced young viewers to a world of imagination and education called Reading Rainbow. And everyone who watched the show knows the first lyrics to the Reading Rainbow theme song. Come on, folks, sing it with me. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. I gotta tell you, man, that opening couplet is so fucking perfect in terms of making you just feel good and introducing you to this series that everyone still has those lines memorized 20 years after the last time they saw the show. I mean, you knew those lyrics, right? I mean, if you ever saw Reading Rainbow, you know those two lines. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. It's a great line. It's got like a little swagger, a little confidence uh, behind it. I was actually saying it's got a lot. I mean, you're looking at a fucking butterfly and you're like, you know what? That's cool that you can fly, but I'm going to go twice as high right now. Watch this, motherfucker. So it, it's cool. And it inspires kids to feel good about themselves and to, you know, have some imagination because obviously, you know, you can't fly, but it's kind of cool to imagine that you could. So, but here, here's the thing. In this segment, usually what I do is I play a little clip from the, the, the song and then I talk and then I play another clip and then I talk. But since this theme song is so short, it's like 40 seconds long, and it's so perfect in its full form, I'm just for the first time ever going to play the entire theme song and then talk about it. So here it is. Here's the theme song from Reading Rainbow on PBS, written by Stephen Horlick, Dennis Neal Kleinman, and Janet Weir, and performed by a singer named Tina Fabrique. 
butterfly in the sky. I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. That is that is so satisfying. All right, so Reading Rainbow. If you don't know about this show, it was on PBS for more than 20 years. But I have to say, I never remember watching it at home. Did you ever watch Reading Rainbow at home on your TV? I never watched it one time at home. But I loved the show, and the only place I ever saw it was in elementary school. Did your school do this? Did you guys watch uh, Reading Rainbow? I mean, I remember when we got to middle school and high school, we always watched Channel One News. That was the show everybody had to watch. But Reading Rainbow in elementary school was one that we would just... I don't even remember what class we watched it in. I don't remember how often we would watch it. But I just remember loving when the teacher would roll the TV out, turn the lights off in the room, and fire up an episode of Reading Rainbow because I, I genuinely loved the show and I thought that it was it was like more educational than what we were learning in, in the classroom. So, I mean, I'd rather be taught by LeVar Burton than my... Elementary school teachers. So, I uh, yeah, I mean, I just I loved when we would turn it on. And school's the only place I ever saw this show, so I owe school a great debt for introducing me to one of my favorite uh, you know children's TV shows. Of course, you know when I was a kid, I, I liked watching it, but I didn't really realize how great a show it truly was. I mean, you think about Reading Rainbow. This show did not talk down to kids at all. It's maybe like the ultimate example of not talking down to kids. And, you know, it, it's really cool. I love the format of the show. First off, the setup of Reading Rainbow was that LeVar Burton, the actor who was in Roots at this point, that was his biggest, you know, he was from Roots, like one of the most hardcore, like the original, you know, big miniseries blockbuster. Um, at that point, that was his biggest role. And, and basically, the show was like this 60 minutes style news magazine that focused on literature for kids. So the format, to me, was the great strength of this show. It was, if you've ever watched 60 Minutes, you know exactly this format. Burton would appear between these short vignettes about different books. He would toss it to the vignette, and then it would come back to him, and he'd say a little thing about the book, and then he'd throw it to the next little segment. And he would kind of act as like the glue that held all these short packages together. It was really cool. It was a cool way to, you know, kids have short attention spans. It was a neat way to keep them focused, keep them engaged, and it's just a just a cool show to watch. It was just it had a great format and I really haven't seen another kids show that has that format. The news magazine style, which is just a great television format. There's a reason why 60 Minutes has been, you know, the highest rated news program and one of the highest rated TV programs in history going back decades. I mean, because that format is fantastic. Um and even if you don't like one story, you're going to stick around and watch because you might like the next one. So the theme song, though, is what I'm talking about here. The theme song for Reading Rainbow was changed twice during the show's run, and it was later sung by Shaka Khan, of all people, in the later seasons. But I love the original version because it's the one that I heard growing up. You know, I'm biased. And uh, the writers of the show, um, or I'm sorry, of the song, would go on to work on music for other kids' shows like Shining Time Station. Some of you might remember that one. And also The Puzzle Place. I don't know if you remember that one. That was a, like a show with uh, with puppets. 
in it. If you looked it up, you might remember it, the puzzle place. Um, while the singer of the song, Tina Fabrique, did a little bit of Broadway work, and she did some gospel stuff. She's, she wasn't like a big singer before this or after this. So to me, you know, after looking into these people's careers, I think it's safe to say that the Reading Rainbow theme song was the greatest hit of all of these people's careers, four different people's careers. The Reading Rainbow theme was, you know, the, the, the peak, the zenith of their professional lives. And I think, you know, you could have a lot worse career than that. So Reading Rainbow, you know, kind of finally here, the, the show legitimately did get me interested in reading a few of the books that I you know, saw on the show, and then I would immediately want to go down to the school library and check out. One that I specifically remember was this book called The Five Chinese Brothers. And I've never been able to shake that book from my head after all these years. I still think about it, and it's probably because it was kind of a grim book, and I don't remember people, like, really being in scary, perilous situations like that um, and kind of having the fantasy element, too. If you remember that book, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's kind of a dark book for kids, but... I remember thinking it looked so cool. They did like an animated kind of version of it on the Reading Rainbow show, and I, I wanted to check it out, and it became one of my favorite children's books, and I still love that book after all these years. So I wondered, you know, if you had any books from Reading Rainbow that, uh, you know, you, you found on that show and have, you know, became one of your favorite kids' books because I think, it, I mean, that, that was the whole goal of the show was to get you into uh, reading. And, uh, and, you know, just the thing that worked so well about this show, it was so comfortable to watch. And it also did not try to hide the fact that you were learning. You knew you were learning, and it didn't make any bones about it. It didn't try to sneak in the education. I loved that the show left it up to you also. If you didn't think that the book sounded good, you know, the show would be like, well, if you don't like that one, check out this next one instead. The idea of not forcing you to be interested in something was really kind of different for a children's show. And that whole mantra was proven by LeVar Burton's famous catchphrase on the show. Of course, him saying, but you don't have to take my word for it. So in the end, Reading Rainbow ran for 155 episodes over the course of 21 seasons. It won 26 Emmys, 11 of which were for the award of Outstanding Children's Program, which is like one show winning 11 um, awards in the field of you know Best Drama Program, Best Comedy. I mean, it won the award of Best Show of its genre for 11 different seasons, which is insane. I mean, about more than half of its run, it was the best show on television for kids, according to the Emmys. It also won a Peabody Award, and the show eventually ended in 2006. Um, so, but, you know, but the legacy lives on, man. Reading Rainbow is fantastic. If you watched it when you were a kid, you still hold a special place for it in your heart. If you didn't watch it when you were a kid, you just don't get it. Sorry, you had to be there, man. The Reading Rainbow theme song, that's my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. I can go anywhere. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Big middle finger to the butterfly. That's great you can fly. Well, watch this. And it's not that the butterfly's on the ground. The butterfly's in the sky. So it's not like a butterfly sitting on a little flower or something, you know, and you just got to jump over it. You got to fly higher than that thing. Twice as high. And you do. Because of the reading rainbow. Beautiful stuff. Just great lyrics. Great song. It says about as much as you can say in 40 seconds. 
All right, I told you we were going to talk about some controversial stuff this week on the show, and that starts with a reader email that I got, or listener email, I should say, that I really um, enjoyed. I thought it had a great question in it. I got an email from one of our listeners named Jason, and Jason wrote in and said, Clint, I know you're a Simpsons fan. Talked about the show before um, on on the podcast. I wondered what you thought of the controversy with Apu. Is it a real issue, or is it just people getting offended over nothing? Thanks. I also really liked The Last Jedi, and I thought Mark Hamill was out of line. All right, well, first off, I appreciate that, Jason, because Mark Hamill was a whiny bitch about The Last Jedi stuff. You don't come in, do your work, take the paycheck, and then complain about the thing. You don't take the job in the first place if you think it's not really worth your time. So, sorry. If you get the paycheck, you can't really come out later and say that, well, I thought it sucked all along. Well, then why'd you put your name on it? Out of line. You can't do that. It undermines the entire movie. Okay, so you're wondering about the Apu thing. So if you haven't been paying attention to the news, if you look up the Apu controversy, you'll see what you know it's all about. There was a, a comedian, an Indian comedian, who made a documentary a couple years ago for True TV that I have not watched yet. But um, the gist of it is that the I think the, the documentary is called The Problem with Apu. And this guy basically says that you know Apu is like the only representation of Indian people, of South Asian people, on television, on mainstream American television, for decades. Like, it was only Apu. He's like the only Indian character that people ever, that bunch of white people in America ever saw. And so they think he's representative of the entire culture. And really, it's kind of a racist stereotype. You know, he owns the convenience store, and he speaks with this very heavy accent that, you know, Indian people have said is not an accent that would come from anywhere in India. Um... And, you know, it's a white guy doing the voice. Hank Azaria is the, the voice actor who does Apu, among, you know, many other characters. He does, he does I think, I think uh, Azaria does more characters on The Simpsons than any other actors. Him or Harry Shearer, they both do, like, a dozen or more characters. So, you know, but he does Apu as one of his signature characters. So Jason asked if it's a real issue. I, you know, it is a real issue. There's no question. This is not just an, an instance of people getting offended over nothing. I, I mean... The Simpsons has one of the least diverse casts that I've ever seen. So that's one thing about The Simpsons. If you look at their cast, almost every actor, every guest actor even, they're all white. Like, everybody's white that has ever done voices on The Simpsons, pretty much. Um, Couple black actors here and there, but really outside of that, that's about it, man. It's a bunch of white people doing voices, all kinds of voices. And... Voice acting itself has typically been like a white person's game for some reason. That's just like a white, you know, guy and girl field for some reason. I mean, Dr. Hibbert on The Simpsons is voiced by a white guy. But the thing with Dr. Hibbert and why Dr. Hibbert is not offensive to black people is, you know, first off, he's a doctor. So it's a great profession. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's showing a lot of respect to this character. But Dr. Hibbert is not the only depiction of a black person on all of television. So it's not like people have never seen a black character. They've only seen Dr. Hibbert. Oh, he's the only black guy. So I guess that means that all black people are doctors and they all laugh a lot, you know, in inappropriate times because that's what Dr. Hibbert does. It's not like that. You know, there's a lot of black characters on television, have been a lot before Hibbert, and thankfully have been a lot more since Hibbert. But with Apu, he's the only Indian character that most people have ever seen on television. So that's it. That's all they know about Indian people is, well, you know, they run a convenience store and they've probably seen Indian people or, or, you know, other Asian people who own convenience stores. 
Middle Eastern people, whatever, and they get them all lumped together and they just go, well, you know, it's like a poo. Thank you. Come again. So it, it is offensive in that way that that it's gone on for so long and that it's been just like he's such a an identifiable character from the show. I don't think The Simpsons has written Apu in a way that is offensive. I think that Apu has always been a character that's that's kind of been shown as one of the smarter people in Springfield, which isn't hard to be. But Apu's a very thoughtful guy, smart guy, good family man, um, hard ass worker. Um, he's a smart guy, you know. He's he's and he's very likable. So I think Apu is a, is a flattering character for sure. But it still remains that he is a stereotype, and you know, it's a white guy doing the voice, and the accent's totally, you know, not authentic and it's just there's, there's a lot of problems that with that so i do think at this point what i would do i would re- retire a poo at this point i'd probably just get rid of the character i think you could do that there's so many ancillary characters on the simpsons that it'd be fine get rid of a poo bring in like a poo's nephew or some other character you know get another get an actual indian actor to voice the character as a guest cast member, give him some storylines like he used to do for a poo. Have him take over the Quickie Mart or do something else. Um, you know, it could, it really could be great because that show, you know, has gotten kind of stale over the years to introduce a new character and to show that you're with the times, you know, evolve. Don't just double down on the fact that, well, you're getting offended over nothing uh, because it is something. You know, this is a new world that we live in than, than it was in 1989, and you got to be representative of people. and. You know, Indian people have have been really good about taking the joke for a long time, and they've had to put up with a lot of shit. People doing the Apu voice and everything to them, and calling them Apu. I think they've been great sports, um, but you know, it's time to to give them a little respect and and probably just retire Apu, send him off, give him a good goodbye. Everyone would love that. You know, let him move to India or move to Canada or do something else, whatever, uh, and just be away from Springfield and and bring in a new character and have him run the Quickie Mart. So I think. You could do that easily. I don't think anybody would have a problem with that, really. I don't think Simpsons fans would really have a problem with that other than the, you know, the fucking right-wing Simpsons fans who are like, well, it's the PC police once again cracking down on our TV shows. So that's my take on that. I appreciate the email, Jason. If you want to email me, it's theclintdavis at gmail.com. T-H-E clintdavis at gmail.com. Good old, good old Apu. He's had his, his moments in the sun, and now I think the sun is setting on uh, that that classic character from one of my favorite TV shows of all time. I am an immigrant. You? I don't believe it. No, in truth, an illegal immigrant, sir. If Proposition 24 passes, I shall be forced to leave this country. Oh, I wish. Oh, I wish I could have stayed just one more year or two. There was so much I wanted to see and to do and to have done to me. Oh, my God. I got so swept up in the scapegoating in front of Proposition 24, I never stopped to think it might affect someone I cared about. You know what, Apu? I am really, really going to miss you. All right, and speaking of controversy... A very controversial event happened on television since the last time we spoke, my friend. And it was on April 28th in Washington, D.C. The entire news media and politicians from both sides of the aisle were offended on that day when Michelle Wolf acted as the keynote comedian at the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner. I usually, I've talked about this show in the past, I've reviewed it in the past. I, when Larry Wilmore did it a couple years ago, I broke down his set and talked about 
you know, gave you my take on it, played some clips from it. So I figured I'd revisit it again uh, this year because it made so much news. Typically, this show, if you've never watched The Correspondence Dinner, in recent decades, the show has been like this pretty, you know, good-natured kind of roast of Washington, of all politicians, of the of the news media, by some comedian that comes up there and, and, and you know, ribs everybody. While the president sits in the room, while his, you know, some of his cabinet members sit there, while you know, members of Congress sit there, and we see them on camera, and famous people from Fox News and CNN and MSNBC, you know, they sit there and, and we watch them get made fun of while we can see them. So it's usually, you know, kind of a, a, a weird, surreal kind of thing. Um, so, you know, it shows that these people have a sense of humor about themselves. That's what it's been used for in the past. And Obama was a great champion of this. For eight years, he took a lot of jokes about himself um, that were, you know, various degrees of, of harsh or or kind of nice. And, you know, he sat there and laughed at all of them. So, and then he would come up and make some jokes himself. But President Trump has turned this into like a one-sided thing where he doesn't even show up. So really all it is is a comic going up there and making fun of someone who's not in the room, which gives it a different, a very different feel. But, you know, that's not the White House Correspondents, you know, Association's fault. That's not the comedian's fault that Trump is too big of a baby, doesn't want to laugh at himself. He always showed up when Obama was the one at the, as the butt of the jokes. He was always fine with that, but now, you know, he, he he can't take it. So it's not the comedian's fault. But anyway, Michelle Wolf took this whole thing in another direction completely, and she made this feel more like an HBO comedy special in front of a paying audience of her own fans than she did something that's airing on C-SPAN, you know, on a Sunday night with like some of the stiffest people in the world sitting in a room watching comedy go down. Thanks to Trump, pink yarn sales are through the roof. After Trump got elected, women started knitting those pussy hats. When I first saw them, I was like, that's a pussy? I guess mine just has a lot more yarn on it. Yeah. Should have done more research before you got me to do this. And she said afterward that she was doing this show for the people at home. She was not trying to play for the room. She was just hoping that the jokes would land with people at home, which is hard to do if you're a comic because, you know, it's all about getting laughs in the room. Those are the people you can hear. You know they're laughing. So if your jokes aren't doing so well in the room, that's hard to keep going forward, man. So I give her credit for that. But she definitely did get a little bit too raw for C-SPAN and some of the other networks who were carrying the dinner. Now, I've worked in a lot of male-dominated fields before comedy. I worked at a tech company. And before that, I worked on Wall Street. And honestly, I've never really been sexually harassed. That being said, I did work at Bear Stearns in 2008. So although I haven't been sexually harassed, I've definitely been fucked. (laughs) Yeah, that whole company went down on me without my consent. And no man got in trouble for that one either. So Michelle Wolf made some harsh jokes about Trump. She made some harsh jokes about the media. She made some harsh jokes about Sarah Sanders, which upset people the most because, you know, people thought that Wolf was picking on Sarah Sanders' appearance, which, you know, she probably was a little bit in some of those jokes. I don't think they were all about her appearance. Um, and I don't think the joke of comparing her to, you know, Aunt... Uh, uh, Lydia from the uh, the uh, the Hunger Games, the, <laughs> the Handmaid's Tale. And of course, we have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say, I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia in the Handmaid's Tale. 
um, which is like is comparing her to Ann Dowd. I don't think that was a big ups. I don't think that was really mean because Ann Dowd is a very nice looking woman. She's an, a, a fucking great actor, one of the best actors on TV. So comparing her to Aunt Lydia, to me, it was comparing her to the character who was just this nasty, awful, soulless person working for a regime that you know she should be revolting against as well as a woman. So I think that's what that's what Wolf was saying in that joke. I don't think it was about her being like I don't think she was calling Sarah Sanders, you know, ugly. I think she was just saying that you know you're this horrible mouthpiece for this this terrible administration. So and who could disagree with that other than Fox News? like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like she burns facts and then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. <laughs> like maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. It's probably lies. But so people were really upset about her per- perceiving her to make fun of Sarah Sanders' appearance. But if I remember correctly, people used to make fun of Obama's ears all the time. People made fun of Obama's clothes all the time, his dad jeans or whatever. They made fun of Donald Trump's hair up there on stage all the time. They made fun of, uh, you know, Trump's, like, orange skin all the time on the show. You know, those are appearance jokes. And it was fine when they made fun of a man, but you can't do it to a woman. What, are women too sensitive? They can't take those jokes? I mean, that's sexist to say that. So, you know, people got upset about that. I think they they were just looking for something to be upset about. You know, uh, Al Franken was ousted. That one really hurt liberals. But I believe it was the great Ted Kennedy who said, wow, that's crazy. I murdered a woman. <laughs> Jeff Aquitic in theaters now. Some people have really blown this whole thing out of proportion and has gone have gone far enough to say that Wolf may have ruined the dinner for good. I read that several times. Did Michelle Wolf ruin the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Did she put an end to comedy at the Correspondents' Dinner? People have said that comics may no longer be invited to perform, which was the case before, you know, for decades before they started doing comedians. It wasn't comedians. It was more like a variety show kind of thing. So it wouldn't be the first time that they didn't have comics anymore. But just to me, that sounds like hyperbole. And it honestly, it sounds like a Trump rule, if I've ever heard one. Because, you know, this event is not put on by the government. It's put on by the media. And so, you know, I can see big baby Trump being upset that people are making fun of him, making fun of his friends. But the media, you know, heads of 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 this of the press corps were upset by Michelle Wolf's jokes. I mean, get a life, man. If anyone was offensive to me, it was it was Sarah Sanders, who numerous people at the show said was sitting and not standing like everyone else in the room was when the press corps was handing out awards and scholarships before the show aired. So apparently Sanders sat through that whole thing instead of standing up, obviously, as a big fuck you to the entire media. So if anyone was offensive, it was her because that's just blatantly disrespectful. Michelle Wolf was just doing her job. She was doing what they hired her for. I mean, should they get people who don't work blue? I guess. I mean, if, if, because it's on C-SPAN, so it makes sense not to get blue comics. But if they're worried about offensive language, um, then, you know, get comics that are not like Michelle Wolf because her style is on full display for anyone who did just a little bit of research into her. I did a single YouTube search of Michelle Wolf stand-up. I typed into YouTube, Michelle Wolf stand-up. And the first result that came up was this bit. Republican or a Democrat, we gotta give Trump credit when he deserves it. Like, he pulled out of the Paris Agreement. 
And I think he should get credit for that because he said he was going to pull out, and then he did, and that's a refreshing quality in a man. <laughs> Most men are like, I forgot. Uh, I'll get you next time. <laughs> oh my God, there's going to be a next time? <laughs> and people say romance is dead. <laughs> We do have too many men in charge, too many men. They don't get us, they don't know. Like, it's, yeah, seven of you, great. So there you go. Do a little research. Obviously, Michelle Wolf is not Seth Meyers or Jimmy Fallon. She's not going to do a song and dance routine that's going to make everybody feel good. She's a 32-year-old feminist comic who is biting and raw. I mean, just look her up before you hire her. Not everyone who has worked for The Daily Show is the perfect fit for your stiff-ass dinner. That's the thing that they're running into. I think the Correspondence Dinner now, they're just, well, if this person like this person used to be a writer on The Daily Show for one season, well, we better hire them because that means that they're a perfect political comedian. I mean, not everybody who's done The Daily Show is a great fit for this dinner, obviously, because Wolf is a little bit more raw than the average Daily Show comic. But the real question here about the White House Correspondents' Dinner is, was Wolf's appearance at the dinner a success? And to that I say, you better believe it, man. If you're a comic and you manage to single-handedly, quote-unquote, end a decades-long tradition with one 20-minute set, you have just made yourself a legend. That's going to be on her Wikipedia page forever. And she has this Netflix show also that's about to come out on May 27th. It's called The Break with Michelle Wolf. Starts on May 27th, so that's just weeks from now. So if you think that she's not liking all the publicity that she's getting, you're definitely wrong about that. She's hot now. And had you ever heard of Michelle Wolf two weeks, you know, uh, two weeks ago before this dinner? Had you ever heard of Michelle Wolf? No. Now you definitely know who she is, and now you know what she's about. So if you liked her set, you're definitely going to be checking out this Netflix show. I think it's going to give her a good launch, man. Mike Pence is also very anti-choice. He thinks abortion is murder, which, first of all, don't knock it till you try it. <laughs> and when you do try it, really knock it. You know, you got to get that baby out of there. So that's my take on the White House Correspondents Dinner from April 28th with Michelle Wolf. You can look up her whole uh, routine on uh, YouTube. C-SPAN posts the whole thing up there if you want to see it. Uh, her show, The Break, debuts on Netflix on May 27th. And I'll be interested to check it out now that I know who she is and I know what she's about. So... That's my take. Did you have something different to say about it? Write me up, theclintdavis at gmail.com. But Michelle Wolf turned that paid appearance into the biggest, you know, publicity tour of her entire career because she's done interviews with everybody since then. So, um, I'm yeah, I, I think it was an, an unmitigated success for her, for Netflix, and uh, for her brand. And speaking of Netflix, last thing I want to get to before I toss it over to uh, Mr. Sedlak down in his basement is the Queer Eye reboot that uh, right now has its first season all the way through on Netflix, if you want to check it out. I'm going to go ahead and call Netflix's reboot of Queer Eye one of my favorite shows that that network has ever done. I was thoroughly impressed with this. It was a blast to watch from start to finish. And it felt like it really had some meat to it, you know, which is so rare for any reality show. Beth, my lovely wife, um, recommended it for us. She was like, you know, I've read about this Queer Eye reboot and I want to watch it. And I was like, I never watched the original, so I don't really know anything about this. And I don't really like reality shows. And I think makeover shows are about as superficial as you can possibly get. Um and they, you know, just reinforce bad messages to anyone who watches them. 
But I, I went along for the ride. I was like, why not? I watched the first episode, and I really, I was hooked right from the start. I loved it. I loved these guys that they got, the fab, the new Fab Five. I, I really thought the subjects were pretty good. I, I thought it was, it was pretty deep. It got much deeper than here's how you look, here's how your apartment looks, and that's going to make you all of a sudden a great person. Um, and, you know, the show was woke, man. It touched on some stuff that most reality shows would just run away from. It had some, you know, some awkward moments of political, you know, political truths and uh, real deep conversations. And I was I was impressed. So I mentioned this show last month. I mentioned that I had started watching it and I wasn't going to give my full review yet. And I mistakenly said in that little review I gave that the show was still, you know, five gay guys making over straight guys. But I was mistaken there because there was one episode this season where the the five gay guys made over a fellow gay man. And it ended up being one of the most powerful episodes of the season. It was this, you know, closeted gay guy who wanted to come out to his mom and wasn't sure how to do it, wasn't sure if she'd accept him. And, you know, by the end, they made him realize how confident he should be in this decision and how good he should feel about himself and how his mom loves him. And, you know, if she's, she really loves him, then she's not going to judge him for this. And it was, it created a beautiful moment, a beautiful tear filled, intimate moment on this little reality show on Netflix. So I, I, I really liked it. So the show lives and dies though, by its subjects that they are making over on the show. And, you know, some worked better than others, I thought that some episodes were much stronger than other ones. Like, I, I really liked the first episode a lot, but I didn't like the final episode very much. I wish they would have put that in the middle because it just felt the most superficial of all of them. But, you know, I thought the guy in the first episode was fantastic because he was so gung-ho. And he just looked and sounded like the last guy that would ever spend time on his appearance or would ever hang out with, you know, a bunch of good-looking gay men. Um but he ended up embracing it so much and making the episode like this great kickoff. He was this, you know, deep south, older, bigger dude. And just his life was kind of in shambles and he didn't give a shit how he looked. And by the end of the thing, he had really embraced the lessons that they had taught him. And it was, you know, kind of fun to watch these guys hang out with him. You know, but then there were some guys who just came off as lazy, had zero personality, um, and I just didn't see the appeal of. So their episodes were not as strong. But I, the majority of them were good. There were only a couple that I really did not enjoy. But for the most part, I really liked the show. While watching it, you know, I also had a hard time believing how genuine some of these people were in terms of their feelings about gay people in general. Uh, the show was filmed in Georgia. Every episode was filmed in Georgia. And so, I mean, that's Deep South, obviously. And everyone was very accepting and friendly of the guys, but I, I just couldn't stop myself from wondering, was that because they really were enlightened and they really were supportive of these guys and they really did like them? Or was it just because, you know, if you stick a camera in somebody's face and you outnumber them one to five with a group of confident out gay men, would everyone act like they loved gay people and supported their human rights? I mean, if that were the case, if all gay people were just out confident, loved who they were, not no apologies, didn't care what anyone else thought. If all gay people were like that, would the world, you know, suddenly everyone change their mind because they would, you know, feel intimidated or they would feel like they've got to get behind this? I don't know. I mean, I have to think that if you stuck a camera in most people's faces, they would all of a sudden change their tune, uh, you know, about a lot of issues that they, behind closed doors, might say other things about. So the cynic in me had a hard time buying some of the attitudes toward, you know, some of the opening open attitudes toward the Fab Five. 
Uh, but these guys are really like impossible not to like. They're so likable. They're so they have so much energy. They make the show, you know, what it is. They they picked this great group of guys who are fun to watch. All of them really do bring something unique to the table in terms of their background, their attitude, their specialty. Uh, you know, one guy is like an expert chef, so he helps them to you know become more confident in the kitchen. One guy is an expert stylist, so he helps them with their look. One guy is uh, you know like a master craftsman, so he's the one who redesigns their. Um, or he's an interior designer, I guess, and, 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 you know, some other people do some of the building and stuff, but he's, uh, he's the one who redesigns their entire house for them, their, their, impart, their apartment. Um, there's one guy who's really attuned to culture and, and politics and kind of asks them the tough questions. And there's one guy who's an expert on fashion and he's the one who makes over their wardrobe. So they did a nice job setting it up as far as all the, the different prongs that they were going to attack with in, in how to make over people. It's not just, well, we're going to change your hair and you're a new man. Good job. They really tried to go a little deeper, which I appreciated. Bottom line, though, Beth and I had a lot of fun watching this show. Uh, it was it was it was cool, and it went by quickly. And I I really wanted there to be more episodes of it. It's a very good casual watch that you're going to burn through fast, and you're going to be the same as me. You're going to be like, man, I'm ready for a second season already. So Queer Eye, right now, the first season is is ready for you on Netflix. I recommend it highly. Uh, I'm not a big reality TV person, but uh, I got to tell you, you should add Queer Eye to your queue. And, and give it a watch this summer, man. Very casual, just fun show to watch. And it's it's fast, and it's a blast. And, you know, you might learn some things. I started to think more about the way I dress after watching the show. And I was never, I would never call myself a schlub to begin with, but I started to think about some of the things they said. And I'm like, man, you know, I do make myself look a little older than I need to. So they give you some really good advice that's not condescending, like some fashion shows can be. Um and they show you like how to buy great clothes at Target in in one of the episodes. So it's not this show that's that's pretentious like some fashion shows can be. It's it's relatable and it's just a fun show to watch. So like I said, add Queer Eye to Netflix Netflix queue and let me know what you thought about it. All right, I'm going to take a break and toss things over to Andy Sedlak, the one and only, out in Dayton, Ohio. Take it away, my friend. 
Uh, but we're glad that you are supporting the Stream Police podcast. If you like what you hear, well, help a couple boys out. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. That'll um, tell Tim Cook or whoever's running the show over there at Apple that uh, we're worth listening to. Uh, more people will find us and more people will rate us, and soon we'll be number one on iTunes. But it, uh, it all begins with you, my friends, so please uh, take a few seconds and uh, give us that five-star rating. Only if we deserve it, though. Don't want no charity. I want to try something a little bit different today. I want to talk about story songs. Story songs. I have been obsessed lately, seeking them out, streaming them, downloading them, buying them. This started This started when I was playing guitar one night. Every now and then, I'll get a, a surge of energy, and I'll track down a, a pen and a, a paper piece of paper, a notebook, uh, to see if I can put something down. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. It's hard to catch a song. Uh, it's like a Pokemon. But on this particular day, I felt like I was off to a good start. And I, I, it seemed to have this story that was building, except I couldn't come up with an ending. And then I started to mess around with the middle, and pretty soon I lost my mojo, and it was all gone. The song got away. I never finished it. But what tripped me up was this story thing. I had it started, but then it got weaker and weaker and weaker. And it occurred to me that type of song is hard to write. A good song in general is difficult to write. But if you're creating characters... You hear my dog up there? <laughs> He's a little 16-pound Jack Russell with a Napoleon complex. What I was saying is if you're creating characters in a song and if you're putting them through events and expecting them to change by the end of the song, that's a lot of ground to cover. And you don't have much time to do it. You have to be incredibly efficient with your writing. It's hard, very hard. And when I talk about story songs, there may be something that immediately pops into your head. Your classic example is something like uh, uh, Tim McGraw's Don't Take the Girl. Johnny's daddy was taking him fishing when he was eight years old. A little girl came through the front gate holding a fishing pole. His dad looked down and smiled Said we can't leave her behind It's your classic story song. There's a beginning, middle, and end. You're literally going from childhood to adulthood. Now, you could quibble and say that it doesn't really have an ending, that the ending is a cliffhanger, but I would say that that song has a write-your-own-ending ending. And that, in itself, is an ending. The way I see it, there are basically three types of story songs. One is the classic example with the beginning, middle, and end. But the other two are examples of songs that depict a series of events without a strict arc. And the third type is the character study or character portrait. 
So let's run through these, and I think you'll enjoy this. I'm going to start uh, with a song that just always grabs my attention when it comes across my iPod or iPhone or whatever. It's by Joe Ely, and it's called Not That Much Has Changed. This is written in a classic style with a beginning, middle, and end. And as far as a setup, all you need to know is in the first line. I grew up in this town, now I'm coming back home. My suitcase is ragged and frayed. Some lives are boarded over, but the horses still eat clover. Not that much has changed. From there are the sights of the narrator's hometown. Little details pepper this experience. The grass is a little dry, the trees are a little high, but the dust still blows on the rain. The schoolyard seems smaller, the church steeple seems taller. Not that much has changed. The song begins its arc when we learn about a love interest. When I left, she said she'd be waiting here for me. She said I got no need to explain. But our old car's gone, just weeds in her lawn. Not that much has changed. And then the end. There's a big reveal. Um, well, I'll, I'll let you put it together. I'm going to back it up just a little bit so that you can get it in context. When I left, she said she'd be waiting here for me. She said I got no need to explain. When our old car's gone, just weeds in her lawn. Not that much has changed. I think about the war and the price we had to pay. And the lives that'll never be the same. And why for all these years no answers have appeared. Why not that much has changed. Not that much has changed It's all just rearranged Like a picture in your mind Of a world you left behind Not that much has changed We learned that the reason the narrator was away was because he was at war. Despite the promises made, the love of his life has moved on. He then begins to ask the larger questions. What was the point? There may have been a purpose in the moment, but what was the lasting purpose? Where is the long-term change? Why hasn't much changed at all? I'll give you another example of a classic beginning, middle, and end story song. I could use any number by Bruce Springsteen. He's written dozens and dozens. Uh, for our purposes today, I'm going to use a song called Johnny 99. Uh, it's one of my favorites, Johnny 99. It's about an out-of-work uh, auto factory worker who, without a job to, to keep him on task, he wavers and turns to violence. Well, they closed down the auto plant in my wallet that month. Ralph went out looking for a job, but he couldn't find none. He came home too drunk from mixing tannery and wine. Got a gunshot at nightclub, now they call him Johnny 99. 
he appears before a hard-ass judge who sentences him to 99 years in prison. That's where the title comes from. Family members freak out in court, but, but none of that is the pivot point. That comes when Johnny addresses the judge himself. Well, judge, judge, I had debts no honest man could pay. The bank was holding my mortgage. They were going to take my house away. Well, now I ain't saying that makes me an innocent man. But it was more all this judge that put that gun in my hand. He continues explaining to the judge, and that explanation carries us through the end of the song. We're left with an exhausted man. And without something to ground people to society, people begin to lose their purpose. That's exactly Johnny's point to the judge, and it's how Springsteen chooses to end his song. Now you're on a ride, do, but... So if you can take a man's life for the thoughts that's in his head, then sit back in that chair and think it over, judge, one more time. Let him shave off my hair and put me on that killing line. Here's another song with a classic storytelling arc. It's by Jimmy Buffett. It's called He Went to Paris, a song that could have been written about the, the prototypical millennial. Except that uh, <laughs> it was written 20 years before most millennials were even born. Buffett's character decides to travel Europe, to backpack through Europe. All he's missing is Snapchat. He went to Paris looking for answers to questions that bothered him so. He was impressive, young and aggressive, saving the world on his own. Warm summer breezes and French wines and cheeses put his ambition at bay. Summers and winters scattered like splinters in four or five years slipped away. He eventually gets married, he settles down, he has a child. But war breaks out and his family falls victim. Well, the war took his baby. Bombs killed his lady and left him with only one eye. His body was battered, his whole world was shattered, and all he could do was just cry. While the tears were falling, he was recalling answers he never found. So he hopped on a freighter. Skidded the ocean and left England without a sound. We come full circle. The old man is like the young man. There are no attachments. And at the end of the song, he's asked about his life. Through 86 years of perpetual motion, if he likes you, he'll smile and he'll say, Jimmy, some of it's magic, some of it's tragic, but I had a good life. One of the most famous examples of the classically styled uh, story song, and I won't walk you through it, but I do want to mention it, is Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle. Uh, it's about uh, parents and children and absentee parents, and, and uh, I'm sorry, it's just too sad to play here. <laughs> I, I wanted to mention it, but it's too sad to play. 
Okay, so those are your classic beginning, middle, and end uh, story songs. Let's talk about series of events songs. Series of events. These songs depict a series of events that infer a larger story. These stories and the messages within them are often topical. These songs are less on the nose as your classic story songs. So let's take a look at one. Let's start off with Manhattan by Bob Seger. Off the bat, we are introduced to a violent criminal named Davy. Shake Davy's got a 12-gauge in his hand It's sawed off to the limit He's got a vague plan all right, so Davey's made up his mind that he's going to pull the old stick up. He scans uh, various stores, but already we start to sense that he's nervous. Seeger mentions briefly that Davey's an addict, and he waits to make his move. It's right around midnight, and there's still too damn many people on this street. He's walked all the way from Battery Park. He's got sweaty hands and burning feet. He's desperate for a fix. His body's screaming, get me high. He bursts through the door and lets one fly. The stick-up itself is, is completely glossed over. It's like Reservoir Dogs, the movie. We see what happens before and after the robbery, but not the robbery itself. By the end of the song, Seeger infers that this is a result of the drug epidemic. And that this is what happens when, quote-unquote, responsible people are minding their own. And it's also about the forgotten folks who get lost in sort of the weeds of a society. Every society has them. But that doesn't make Davy's story any less troubling. Sunrise in the park, and Davy's cold as stone. He got some bad merchandise, and he was all wrong. Two more unsolved mysteries, a lot of paper pushed around. Most folks are just waking up in this great big town. All right, let's do another one. Uh, we'll move to hip-hop. This is called Minds Playing Tricks on Me by the Ghetto Boys. You've probably heard it. Uh, again, we're showing a series of events and examples that all circle back and bolster the title. The story is linear. We drop in. After events have already taken place. That is to say, we don't get the beginning of the story. At night I can't sleep. I toss and turn. Candlesticks in the dark. Visions of bodies being burned. Four walls just staring at a nigga. I'm paranoid sleeping with my finger on the trigger. My mother's always dressing. I ain't living right. But I ain't going out without a fight. See, every time my eyes close, I start sweating. And blood starts coming out my nose. It's somebody watching the act, but I don't know who it is, so I'm watching my back. What's the song about? It's about the price you pay for prestige. It's about the price you pay for prestige in the underground of the inner city. It's about gang warfare, and it's about unspoken thoughts. 
I make big money, I drive big cars, everybody know me. It's like I'm a movie star, but late at night, something ain't right. I feel I'm being tailed by the same sucker's headlights. Is that move that I ran off the block? Or is it that nigga last week that I shot? Or is it the one I beat for $5,000? Thought he had came, but it was gold, met a flower. Reached under my seat, grab my papa for the suckers. Ain't no use to me lying, I was scared of a motherfucker. There's not really an arc here. It's it's just it's example after example, and we're drawn in further and further. Day by day is more impossible to cope. I feel like I'm the one that's doing dope. Can't keep a steady hand because I'm nervous. Every Sunday morning I'm in service, praying for forgiveness. And trying to find an exit out for business. I know the Lord is looking at me. But yet and still it's hard for me to feel happy. I often drift when I drive, having fatal thoughts of suicide. I compare these types of songs to indie movies, to, to independent films. In a lot of indies, there are a series of events and then the film ends. There's no resolution. And the Ghetto Boys don't give us resolution here. Only paranoia that gets to the point of hallucination. These songs are somewhat more reflective of life. Um, Clint told me one time that on any given day, uh, a song by Joe Ely, we're going to go back to Joe Ely again real quick, that a song by Joe Ely called The Road Goes On Forever may well be his favorite song of all time. And that song is a series of events song. One event bleeds into the next, which bleeds into the next. But there's no resolution. The two characters, Sonny and Sherry, are star-crossed lovers, reminiscent of Bonnie and Clyde. They meet as a result of violence. Sonny's playing eight ball at the joint where Sherry works. When some drunken out-of-towner put his hand up Sherry's skirt. Sonny took his pool cue, laid the drunk out on the floor. Stuffed a dollar in her tip jar and walked on out the door. She's running right behind him, reaching for his hand. The road goes on forever, and the party never ends. By the end of the song, Sherry doesn't exactly learn any lessons. She makes nothing but bad decisions. She helps out Sonny, who is a criminal. She even kills a cop. Uh, But she benefits from the dirty money and just moves on to the next chapter. One event bleeds into the next it's main street after midnight just like it was before 21 months later at the local grocery store sherry buys a paper and a cold six pack of beer the headlines read that sunny is going to the chair she pulls back on the main street in her new mercedes benz the road goes on forever but the party never ends The third type of story song is the character portrait or the character study. All of these classifications speak for themselves to a degree. The classic story song, the series of events song, and uh, the character portrait song. These stories are told by zooming in on one person. Then they make their larger point by way of him or her. So uh, let's look at... uh, Fairly obscure song first. This is called She's No Lady by Lyle Lovett. It begins humorously. She hates my mama. She hates my 
daddy too She loves to tell me She hates the things I do She loves to lie beside me almost every night She's no lady, she's my wife. Truthfully, this whole darn thing is pretty funny. The preacher asked her, and she said, I do. The preacher asked me, and she said, yes, he does too. The preacher said, I pronounce you 99 to life. Son, she's no lady, she's your wife. What does this speak to? That's a matter of your perspective. It either speaks to the unexplainable attraction one person has for somebody else or to a what-happened-to-my-life kind of despair. It depends on you, the listener. And I can't remember how I ever thought that I just couldn't live without a woman's charm. Yeah, she hates my mama. She hates my Here's another character study, this time by way of Tupac. It's called Brenda's Got a Baby. I hear Brenda's got a baby, but Brenda's barely got a brain. A damn shame, the girl can hardly spell her name. That's not our problem, that's up to Brenda's family. Well, let me show you how it affects our whole community. Now- that's the payoff line right there. By spotlighting Brenda, we're shown how the dominoes fall and influence the prosperity of an area at large we can reasonably conclude that the problem of teenage pregnancy is widespread enough that we should at least give a darn or give it some thought as a society. Now, Brenda really never knew a mom's and a dad was a junkie putting breath into his arms. It's sad because I bet Brenda doesn't even know. Just because you're in the ghetto doesn't mean you can't grow. But oh, that's a thought. My own revelation. Do whatever it takes to resist the temptation. Prostitution, drugs, crime. Brenda takes up these things because of the Brendas that came before her. But there will be Brendas that come after her, too. It's a cycle, but Tupac gives us just one case to illustrate the entire cycle. Some songs are are made up of many character studies wound together, like Billy Joel's Piano Man. Uh, Here's another one. Uh, This is by Randy Newman. It's called A Wedding in Cherokee County. The song is about a young man about to get married, and we are shown the family which the bride comes from. Papa was a midget. My mama was a whore. Granddad was a newsboy. He was a These are straight-ahead people. I don't want to say they're simple uh, because it doesn't do them justice. There's enough reflection on the narrator's end to keep him from being simple. But it's safe to say these people aren't impressed with the pomp and circumstance of a wedding. Uh, Is it because they're jaded? Is it because they don't like him? Uh, Does the bride even like him? Or is she settling? All of it is unclear. But the characters are so vivid that as a listener, you can't help but to start to draw your own conclusions. 
Okay, so I told you things would be a little different today. I hope you enjoyed it. Obviously, some genres lend themselves to uh, to storytelling uh, more than others. Country's a big one, folk, Celtic music, but but it's everywhere. In hip-hop, it's in rock, uh, pretty much everything but EDM. <laughs> Not too many uh, stories coming out of EDM. All right, friends, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. At the end of every episode, I give you five more songs to add to this playlist, uh, which you can listen to anytime. Just go ahead and log on to Spotify, uh, fire up the app, and search for the Stream Police Podcast. All right? Search Stream Police Podcast Playlist, and um, and you should have no trouble finding it. So here are five more songs that we're going to add to it. The first is Cry Like a Baby by The Box Tops. The second is called Scream Like a Baby. This is by David Bowie. Third from Mr. Bruce Springsteen. Another story song. This is called Wreck on the Highway. Next, and I love this band, um, Cross Canadian Ragweed. I wish people, more people talked about them. The song's called 17. Running from your books, running from the law. Running from love, running from your fears, running from it all. You keep on running, boy. You run yourself in. And finally, from Steve Earle, this is called I Feel All Right.
All right, that's it. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you in a few weeks. Behave yourselves. Peace. Thank you very much, Andy. Gave me a nice long break there. Got to sit here and puff on my stogie for a while in the closet. I'm back. Clint Davis, Movies and TV Editor, OverdueReview.com. Now non-existent. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll be sure to keep you informed here on the show. But every month, we'll keep bringing you the Stream Police podcast at very least. You can also check us out on YouTube at uh, Overdue Review if you give it a search there. I've been, uh, you know, doing more on the YouTube channel lately than I I had in in previous years. So uh, there's some good stuff up there if you want to check it out. Some highlights from this show, uh, some some classic segments, and also some original reviews that are up there at the website that I spend a lot of time on. When I do a video review, I want to do it right. That's why I don't do very many of them. But uh, I think when we do them, they're they're well produced. So I think you'll enjoy that stuff. If you give us a subscribe over at Overdue Review on YouTube. All right, so I told you uh, that I'm going to talk with spoilers about the Avengers Infinity War. So if you haven't seen Infinity War and you want to see it, you might as well stop the podcast now. Do just, just go ahead and turn it off. It's all right. You won't hurt my feelings. I'm not really going to talk about anything else after this, so you're not going to miss anything but this conversation about the Avengers Infinity War. So there's your big warning. That's your spoiler warning. I'm going to do spoilers. I don't usually do that on this show, but I figured this time I might as well because this this movie is such a sensation already that I might as well get it out there because I'm assuming a lot of you guys, since you're listening to this show, you've probably seen the new Avengers movie. So if you haven't and you want to, don't listen to this. But if you don't care about spoilers, then let's 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 go together, my friends. So Beth and I went and saw the Avengers Infinity War um, in theaters on opening weekend, uh, on opening night, actually, as many of you guys probably did as well. And the next, the following Monday, so we went and saw it on Friday, and the following Monday, we were sitting in Lamaze class, all right? Sitting in Lamaze class in, in beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio, Cincinnati. And this class has 10 couples in it, 10 couples that are about our age. I'd say they're probably, everyone's pretty much like around 30 in this class. We're sitting in Lamaze class with this you know, group of, of 10 couples, and the teacher asked everyone to talk about what they did over the weekend. Like I said, the class has 10 couples in it. And five out of 10 of us, of the couples, said that we went to see Infinity War over the weekend. That was opening weekend. That was half of just some... Now, I know that's not some scientific, um, you know, poll or anything. But just half of some random grouping of people that don't know each other, that don't know about each other, what each other are into. We don't know what our desires are, what we like, what we don't like. And different races and everything. Five out of ten of us couples... So that was, you know, ten people had gone to see the Infinity War. Ten out of twenty people had seen the movie... On opening weekend. So to me, I was just like, oh my God, like I got to mention this on the show because that shows you just how big these Marvel movies truly are, and especially the Avengers movies, how big these truly are. So, but let's get to the content, the meat of the movie. We know it's made a shit ton of money. It's made a, you know, a billion dollars in 11 days and set the record for that and, and, you know, setting all these pre sale records and everything else. The question that I have to ask though with these Marvel movies, and I've seen every single one of them now. 
I have to ask, how good do these movies need to be for us to be impressed and for us to go to the next one? Like, is the hook so deep set that it doesn't matter how good the movies are? Because the thing with the Marvel movies is that they've all been at least good or pretty good. Like, if someone asked you your quick opinion on them, you're going to be like, yeah, no, it's pretty good. It's good. They're, I don't think there are any of the. I don't think any of the Marvel movies. Now Beth hates Ant Man, and she thought Doctor Strange sucked, but she really hated Ant Man. If you asked her, she would tell you that those movies sucked. But I think most people would tell you, and, and present company included, even the Hulk movie, the the one uh, with Edward Norton. Even if you, it, no matter what one you ask me about, I would tell you, yeah, you know, pretty good. That's about as bad a review as I'm going to give any Marvel movie. Pretty good. And for, you know, most of them I'll say they're good. And for a few of them, I'll say they're great. So how many of them have actually been great movies, though? So they've done 19 movies. And I would say, if you asked me what the great Marvel movies were, the ones I would put in the great category would be the original Iron Man, the first Avengers movie, Iron Man 3, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Captain America Civil War, and Black Panther. I would call those great movies. And I would even go f- so far as to say that the Avengers, the first Avengers movie, the Winter Soldier, and the Civil War movies, would I would call them fantastic movies. I would say that those three are legitimately fan, like five-star kind of fantastic, great movies. I, the, I go back and forth on the Gardens of the Galaxy movies. I'm not sure that I would call them truly great because you know they do just feel like a little bit too silly compared to the others but they're really fun to watch and they're very good. So maybe you'd include the Guardians movies. I really do like them. I think James Gunn is a great director. I think he's he's he knows what makes these characters so good and the actors have really gotten into these roles and it's they're fun, you know. And I really like the the Guardians movies. But I don't know that I'd call them great. They don't feel as weighty as some of the really great Marvel movies. But and they always felt disconnected, too, so it's hard to even bring them in until Infinity War when we finally see them together. But out of 19 movies, that's six that I'd say rose above the level of pretty good. So six out of 19. So that means basically one out of every three movies is truly awesome, and the other ones are just, you know, pretty good. Now the big question, did Infinity War join that list of great Marvel Cinematic Universe movies? And my quick answer is no. Not quite. It did not rise to the level of great. Once again, if you ask me my, my, my fast opinion after I was walking out of the theater of Infinity War, I would have said, oh my God, that was awesome because it's such an intense movie to watch. And the end leaves you just gasping. But if you know, I, I think about it a little bit longer, I would probably say it was good. You know, it was a, it was a fine movie. It was better than average, I think, but not quite one of the great Marvel movies. It did have some real stakes. But also, there were times when I thought the visuals in this movie were, I don't know, kind of shitty looking. Like, did you see when when Hulk, like, gets into the the Hulk Iron Man suit? It wasn't Hulk, it was Bruce Banner. When Bruce Banner gets into the big Hulk Iron Man suit because he can't turn into Hulk, didn't that look really fake to you? Like, his head being in there, it just looked really cheesy. Like, the suit looked so cartoony. And he just didn't look, it, it didn't look good. You know, after all these years of how they and when tony like his regular suit turned into the iron man suit i thought that looked a little cheesy too there were just some things that i was like man i think the visuals have taken a step back uh here in the infinity war i don't know why 
So I wasn't that impressed with the visuals, but there were some really stunning, like, big set-piece visual moments. There were a lot of funny moments in this one, a lot of laughs. Uh, there was a great spectacle, you know, of seeing all these beloved characters together, which I thought was really fun. It was so cool to see Thor hanging out with the Guardians and to see these, you know, see Rocket interacting, you know, with Captain America. Just fun. Fun to see that. Because we've spent a lot of time with these characters and it's cool to see them finally get together. Most of all, though, what makes Infinity War better than average is that it has a great villain. And it has this plot action that is that was set in motion years ago, so it feels like a slow burn payoff, which is is really good. You know, they they've they've earned this. They earned the big moments in this movie. They earned them because they set them up years ago. Nothing feels too rushed in this movie. I don't think. I think Infinity War is a movie that Marvel Studios should be proud of because it represents the payoff for ten years of world building. But the big problem with this movie is it also just feels too much like a sequel setup, which it obviously is. We know there's going to be an, an Infinity War 2 or whatever it's going to be called. But it just feels like a sequel setup. And the shocking ending seems way too big. I don't want to say too good, but way too big to be true. It just doesn't jibe with what I know about business and about the movie making industry and about Disney and, you know, about how Marvel Studios has handled itself. So basically the point of the movie, if you haven't seen it and you don't care about spoilers, is that the, you know, the Avengers and the Guardians of the Galaxy all are able to come together and they have to they're trying to defeat this, you know, this Titan villain named Thanos that you've seen before a couple times here and there in some of the other uh the the other movies in the past, the Marvel movies. He's played by Josh Brolin. He's just this massive hulking dude, like he's like the size of the Hulk, really. When you see him next to people, it's really it's kind of cool to see him interacting with people. And I thought he looked really good. The visuals on Thanos were very strong, and he's been spending you know years collecting these Infinity Stones, um, which there are f- five of them, six of them, I can't remember, and they fit on this gauntlet, this glove that he has, and if he collects all of them, then he can basically like just wipe out entire planets you know by snapping his finger he can control time he can control reality he can control you know life and death everything it makes him you know pretty much invincible to have these infinity stones so in the movie he's trying to get them and of course he does end up getting them and his idea what thanos wants to do is he he thinks that overpopulation is killing the universe the world i'm not exactly sure where he wants to focus his efforts but he wants to wipe out like half of the entire population because he thinks that's the only way to save the universe because people are just using you know too many resources and everything. It's kind of a weirdly environmental thing that hasn't been touched on before, you know, as far as because I, I would have assumed that Tony Stark's inventions probably he he's, he had to have invented some things that were like you know perpetual energy machines or something that we we weren't using fossil fuels anymore we weren't hurting the earth i mean if stark hasn't been doing that then what the hell has he been been doing with his you know great wealth and his uh, knowledge of of innovation so i don't know that, that kind of came out of nowhere but he he wants to wipe out basically half the entire population and he ends up doing it in this movie at the end and that's the big devastating thing he kills half of like the entire universe i guess including half of all the characters that we've loved in the marvel cinematic universe so but le- before i get to all that stuff the heroes in this movie one of my other problems with infinity war is that the heroes become pretty one dimensional in this movie one thing that made Civil War so great, and that's why I think Civil War is the best of all the Marvel movies, 
is that the human dynamics between the Avengers heroes were on display, you know, so well. And the movie was not black and white. You know, there the movie let you choose whose side you were on. You know, did you think that Captain America was was uh, you know right? Did you think that Tony Stark was right? Did you think one of them was a jerk? Did you not like the other one? Did you, you know, it, it let you choose. Who are you aligning yourself with? Who do you want to win? And you weren't wrong either way, really. But Infinity War, you know, sees all the hatchets buried, and it brings out a villain who does have strong motives, but he's so ruthless that he makes all the heroes full-on baby faces like right away, you know, because he is just such a ruthless character. Which, you know, it's great in pro wrestling to have the full-on baby faces, but it's not so great in PG-13 movies when we want a little gray. You know, we want some gray areas here, and that's where the Marvel movies have been better than average is when they get to the gray of their heroes. Throughout the film, the story kills off, first off, in the non-Thanos, like, before Thanos kills everybody, the characters who die legitimate deaths, I feel like, are Loki, Heimdall, the the part that Idris Elba played in the Thor movies, uh, Vision, and Gamora. Those four characters seem to die just by regular means. But we're going to see on Gamora because, as always, if you don't see a body, they aren't dead. That's always been my rule. And sometimes, even if you do see a body, they still aren't dead. Hello, Saul. I'm talking to you. And in comic book movies, they come up with so many convoluted fucking ways to bring people back to life that... I'm kind of just jaded on any characters dying ever uh, at this point. So, But the film, they killed off Loki, Heimdall, Vision, and Gamora in ways that were not related to Thanos. Well, I mean, I guess Thanos did kill a couple of them, but not in the, at the end. So, But like I said, the real shockers of the movie come in the final minutes of Infinity War when Thanos' plan succeeds and he's able to make half the world's population disintegrate just by snapping his fingers. Everyone starts turning into ash and disappearing. But I was confused on, was it half the universe? Was it just half of Earth? Because, you know, why did he kill some of the non-Earth-bound characters if it wasn't related to Earth? I mean, why did some of the Guardians of the Galaxy die? Like, if they weren't Earthlings? You know, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, they were aliens. So why would he kill... Was it the whole universe? He wiped out half of the entire universe? I'm not sure. I just... I don't know. But in this mass genocide of characters, the ones who disappear into a pile of ash are, and here are all the characters who died in Infinity War, Doctor Strange turns into ash, Winter Soldier turns into ash, the Scarlet Witch, she's like the ultimate badass, she turns into ash, all the Guardians of the Galaxy turn into ash, so they're gone, Nick Fury, Samuel L. Jackson's character, uh, turns into ash, and Maria Hill of S.H.I.E.L.D., also turns into Ash. And finally, the two characters who make all belief that these are going to be legit character deaths go out the window. Spider-Man and Black Panther both turn into Ash also. So Spider-Man and Black Panther are seemingly killed at the end of Infinity War, along with all those other characters. So I can go with Doctor Strange, Bucky, Scarlet Witch. I can go, even I can maybe go with Guardians of the Galaxy being wiped out, maybe. Nick Fury, certainly. I kind of already thought he was dead, honestly. Um, But then they kill Spider-Man and Black Panther, and I'm like, okay, obviously these are not going to be real deaths. And I don't care what Kevin Feige says. There's no way these are real deaths. Spider-Man Homecoming made $900 million and already has a sequel in the works, and Black Panther made nearly $1.2 billion. It was, you know, the biggest Marvel movie of the non-Avengers properties. And also... 
Black Panther has a sequel coming out soon. Unless Marvel Studios are complete dumb shits, and we know they aren't from the way they've run this, they are not going to kill off their two hottest new properties while keeping alive all the old guys who've expressed interest in retiring from their roles. I mean, why would they not use Infinity War as a natural torch passing to the newer characters and have them get in, you know, in gear and team up to save the honor of the old characters who were killed? Would that have been predictable? I mean, maybe, but it would have still had a gut punch and it would have set things up better for a new generation of Avengers characters. So, I mean, if, if they, at the end of Infinity War, had killed Captain America, if they had killed Iron Man, if they had killed the Hulk... You know, if they had killed Thor, I would have believed all of those. I would have been like, man, they're really dead. It's like we've spent 10 years with these characters. They're gone. But when they they're honestly, they're going to keep the old guys alive and they're going to kill Spider-Man. They're going to kill the Black Panther, T'Challa. I mean, come on. These are the biggest, hottest properties that the company has going. It doesn't make any sense. And I don't know. So that's why I just don't believe for a minute that these are actual character deaths. You know, until I'm proven otherwise, I just I expect all of these characters, almost all of them, to come back. So, like I said, I was totally buying all the deaths until they killed Spider-Man and Black Panther. And even if you're not buying them, it was still a gut punch. And it was still shocking to watch these characters you really like disappear. And especially the way they did the Spider-Man one. It was so sad. And it was so... It was... Uh, you know, people were getting emotional in the theater because he just sounded like a scared kid, which he was... And all of a sudden, he just disappears into a pile of ash. So it was it was shocking. You know, it was, it was pretty scary stuff. I think for kids, it would be scary because all of a sudden, these characters are all just gone. Sorry, they're just dead with no fight. They're just gone. But, you know, there's no way I'm buying it because of the, the deaths of Spider-Man and Black Panther. As soon as you introduce an element like the Time Stone also into a, a, a franchise, you know that on-screen hero deaths are meaningless because, you know, they'll always be able to go back in time, bring them back somehow. It sucks, but that's how these sci-fi superhero movies work, and that's why the deaths don't really mean anything because they've got things like the Time Stone, and somebody can always inevitably go back in time and fix things and bring everybody back. And I don't know. And, and you have to remember the key to the whole Infinity War movie was Doctor Strange saying that he was meditating and he saw every possible future from that moment. He saw like hundreds of thousands of different futures. And Tony Stark asked him, how many of them did we beat Thanos in? And Doctor Strange says, one. So there's one path that will let the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, the, the Avengers characters, beat Thanos. And Doctor Strange knew what that path was. And remember, Doctor Strange is the guy who gave the Time Stone to Thanos so he's the one who made the whole thing set in motion. He knew what was going to happen. He saw it coming. And you're, you're like, why would he give him the, the stone? He did it. And he's the one who knows the future. So obviously, Doctor Strange gave him that because he knew that was the only way that they're ever going to beat Thanos. So if he didn't give him the stone, somehow you know he was going to get it anyway, and it was just going to go differently. So Strange knew what he was doing. Doctor Strange is the key to the whole thing because he knows the future already. And uh, that's even why you've got to have hope for the next movie, because he saw what was going to happen. And, and uh, you know, the, the guys are going to have to win, but they're going to have to follow that future. So I don't know. It, it's it's crazy stuff. I mean, it's kind of convoluted to talk about. But, you know, I, I hope part two of this gives us, you know, a little more character depth, a little more anguish, some mourning, along with the continuing story of Thanos 
you know, I think the capper could be better and more satisfying than Infinity War was. And I wonder what you think. I mean, how did you feel about the movie when it was over? I, like I said, I think it was better than average. I'll certainly watch it again. Um, but I'm really I'm looking forward to part two, and that's that's all they needed to do. They needed to get me set up for part two. But it just feels a little bit like a sequel setup. Whereas the first Avengers and um, Age of Ultron, which Age of Ultron was not that good, but still, those movies felt like standalone movies. They felt like events, and this one kind of felt like the setup to the payoff. So we'll see uh, we'll see what's going to happen with Infinity War in the uh, next movie. But I'll be right here every step telling you what i think about it so what did you think give me a give me a shout at the clint davis at gmail.com infinity war is in theaters now and probably will be for the foreseeable future tell me his name again thanos he's a plague tony he invades planets he takes what he wants he wipes out half the population he sent loki the attack on new york that's him what's our timeline no telling he has the power in space stones. That already makes him the strongest creature in the whole universe. If he gets his hands on all six stones, Tony. He could destroy life on a scale hitherto undreamt of. Did you seriously just say hitherto undreamt of? But I still think Civil War, man. Civil War is the the crowning achievement of the of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That was just a that was a fantastic movie. Love that movie. Alright, so uh last thing here before I head out the door. A um, couple movies now streaming on Netflix and Amazon. I always like to close the show out by giving you some things for your queue, some things to watch at home. And first off, I want to actually add Hulu to the list real quick because Hulu now has my beloved NYPD Blue streaming in its entirety. If you remember a couple years ago, Amazon was streaming it uh, in its entirety, and then they all of a sudden just took it away right when I was in the middle of rewatching the entire series. And so I had to start going to the library and checking out the DVDs, and it was very time-consuming. But now Hulu has brought it back. So if you want to watch Blue, and if you like cop procedural shows, Blue, to me, is the ultimate one. So, you know, give it give it. a... I'm not counting the wire, and I'm talking about network shows. NYPD Blue, though, is so good, so fun to watch, especially when it hits its stride like seasons. I, season one is fantastic. It's one of the best first seasons. And that is one of the best pilot episodes I've ever seen in TV history. If you just want to watch the pilot, I guarantee you you want to watch the rest of the series because that pilot is so fucking good. It is one of the most well-written, well-imagined, and executed pilots of any show that I've ever seen. It's got great lines of dialogue in it that I still remember. It's got great moments, huge character moments. We get to know the characters right away. So Hulu with NYPD Blue, that's my big streaming pick for the month of uh, of May right now. But on Netflix, there was a lot of good stuff added in the last month, actually. Uh, Heat, which I mentioned last month, Face Off was added, LA Confidential, Cocktail, Cube, Red Dragon. So those are some of my favorite movies were added to Netflix, but the one I want to pick out to recommend for you is Cold Mountain. If you never saw this one, uh, this is truly one of my favorite romantic movies. Uh, it's just, it's so romantic. The classic story of the lovers who are worlds apart, it feels like, and need to get back together again. And, you know, they're writing letters back and forth and, and we're following their lives. And it's such a sad, grim movie at times set in the Civil War days. Uh, but man, it is a beautiful movie. The way it's shot, the way it's done. I really, really like Cold Mountain a lot. Um, and I think Nicole Kidman does some great work. I think 
Uh, Jude Law does some really great work in this. Even, you know, Jack White's got a little acting, does a little acting in it. He does a nice job. Um, it's a it's a really, it's a tough movie. It's got some tough moments, but it's a, it's a really good one. It's it's one of my favorites, like I said, in the romantic genre. Cold Mountain, give it a, give it a watch. And on Amazon, a movie that is not romantic at all, but just oozes style, is Michael Mann's Manhunter uh, from the 80s with, the guy who played Gil Grissom in the CSI uh, series, whose name is escaping me right at the moment. Um, Manhunter is the original Hannibal Lecter movie. It's the first time that Hannibal Lecter ever appeared on screen. And I think it was 1985, I want to say, 84, 85. And Michael Mann directed it. You know, I love Michael Mann. Told you, I, I recommended Heat last time. And he's the guy who who did Miami Vice back in the day. And this is very much like a Miami Vice kind of looking movie it's very cool the soundtrack's one of the best soundtracks ever and the movie just looks great it's got great performances uh the original appearance of hannibal lecter on screen and it's a it's just a cool movie man i like manhunter i wrote about it for overdue review back in uh, a little while ago and i loved it I, I thought this i think this movie's great it's got so much style so check that out on amazon manhunter right now streaming for you all right that's going to do it for this edition of the stream police podcast we'll talk to you again in a month my friend Write me anytime at theclintdavis at gmail.com. T-H-E, Clint Davis at gmail.com. Always appreciate your letters, and I like reading them on the air. Um, and you can write Andy anytime at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. S-E-D-L-A-K, journal at gmail.com. I know he likes them, too. Uh, thank you very much, my friend. We will talk to you next time. I'm Clint Davis from OverdueReview.com. Until then, stream on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.